Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 1. And Lord, open our hearts and our ears to hear what you're saying to us tonight. Be glorified. We're just so thankful for this book and thankful that you're going to speak to us tonight. In Jesus' precious name, amen. This is the fifth and final book of Moses called the Pentateuch or called the Torah and um, the Penta meaning the, the five books, the first five books, Penta meaning five. And uh, the word Deuteronomy, interesting enough, is actually a Greek word found in the Hebrew. Uh, Deuter meaning second and Namas meaning law or the second law or in its actual translation, a reiteration of the law once again. Why do we need to hear the law reiterated once again? Well, several reasons. One is that the first whole generation has died out. And um, now it's the kids, the second generation, that is uh, raised up and they hadn't heard the law from Moses. Also, there was a new leader, Joshua. There would also be new temptations. They needed to hear the law, know the law. Each and every generation needs to hear the teaching once and again to keep being kept from temptation. There's also, as the law is reiterated, there's a deeper message. This time there's a message of love. In the first four books, the word love was scarcely mentioned. However, in the book of Deuteronomy, the word love is used constantly. And also, um, to make sure that they entered into the land. And uh, this time, they're going to be a lot more spoken of obeying the law, not just the facts of the law, but to love God and obey God. And that's really the theme of the book of Deuteronomy, to love and obey. And uh, it is the most quoted book in the entire Bible. It's most quoted by Jesus. Jesus quoted the book of Deuteronomy far more than any other book. Interesting enough, you look at Matthew chapter 4 and Jesus' temptation, when Satan is tempting him three times, Jesus quotes the scripture, basically telling the devil to get lost, and each time he's quoting out of the book of Deuteronomy. Can you, it sounds like a little echoey or something. Does it sound okay to you guys? Let's take a vote. No, only kidding. And so, um, we get started here tonight, and Moses now has taken them as far as he can go. He has misrepresented God. He won't be able to go into the promised land. And uh, it says, These are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel on this, this side of the Jordan, because he wouldn't be able to cross over, in the wilderness, in the plain opposite Suf, between Paran, Tophel, Laphon, Azeroth, and Dezahav. In the Hebrew, the B has a V sound, and so it's Lavan and Dezahav. And uh, who really cares? Okay, uh, verse 2. It is the 11 days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. Did you catch that? 11 days. Now listen to verse, 30, or verse 3. Now it came to pass in the 40th year in the eleventh month, on the first day of the month, that Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him as commandments to them. You know, when you read those two verses, you don't know whether to laugh or whether to cry. I mean, it's, 
an 11-day journey took him 40 years. I mean, you take 22 days, 11-day journey, I mean, that's bad enough. But to take 40 years to walk an 11-day journey? Well, it was their unbelief, their disobedience that kept them out of that land. Now, really, when I see this, this speaks more to me of God's patience than anything else. I mean, would you be patient enough to stay with these people 40 years and 11-day journey? I mean, that had to be tough on God. But here with the people, here they are back where they started 40 years earlier. Right outside of Egypt, they're at uh, Kadesh Barnea Horeb uh, as they're heading down uh, to the promised land. You might say it took God one night to take the children of Israel out of Egypt, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of the children of Israel. Well, after he had killed Sion, king of the Amorites, who dwelt in Heshbon, Og, king of Bashan, who dwelt at Asheroth in Edri. Now, this is a real key verse. Because if you look at the Amorites, and you might remember over in Genesis chapter 15, after God had spoke to Abraham that he would have many children as the stars of the heavens, God also told Abraham that the children would go into bondage for 400 years. Why? Because the sins of the Amorites had not yet been fulfilled. God had given these kings that we're going to see destroyed here even in the next couple of chapters, man, woman, and child completely destroyed. God had given them 400 years to repent. That also is greatly patient of God. But they did not repent, and so now God is using the children of Israel to come in and destroy them. We see this as consistent way of God disciplining, uh, keep wiping the, the world from sin, but also from disciplining his own children. Later on we'll see um, where the Babylonians come down and Assyria comes down to wipe out parts of Israel as a spanking to them to say, wake up and turn back to God. And so God used various nations and wars and battles to straighten people up. And no doubt he does the same today. Because nations, you see, they don't go to heaven or hell. Nations, they just quit existing. Our early forefathers saw this. They said God can't bless a nation in the eternal realm, so therefore God has to bless or curse a nation now. And so they were confident that if we will set our early forefathers of our country said, if we as a nation will set our focus to please God, God is indebted to have to bless us now because, you know, America won't go to heaven. Uh, and so they set as a nation to be pleasing unto God and uh, from every dollar bill to say, in God we trust. We're not trusting in this green piece of paper here. We're trusting in the living God. He's our security. To uh, our whole, ju whole judicial system was set up upon the Bible. Every aspect of our government, our whole moral ethics of our law, the Judeo-Christian eth ethics, which is higher than any other ethics in the world, is all set up from the Bible. And that's why our nation is blessed. Even now that we've been in this backslidden situation for the last, oh, 
I don't know, it depends who you talk to, but anywhere from 50 to 100 years, even now, we are still possessing a small little remnant of the world population. We are still possessing more than one-fifth of the world's wealth. The 270 million people out of 6 billion people, yet we possess almost over one-fifth of the world's wealth. Why? I can tell you why. Because God's hand of blessing is upon us, and now we're looking upon the residue of a glory that once was ours as a, a nation. They, the whole world used to look to us for justice. They used to look to us for an example. They used to look to us for peace. The world looked to us, and now they look at us ashamed. But again, if we as a nation will turn back, God can bless us once again. But in verse 5, on this side of the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses began to explain this law. And so if I were to say what the book of Deuteronomy was in three words, that would be it, to explain the law. The Lord our God spoke to us in Horeb, saying, You have dwelt long enough at this mountain. So he begins now to rehearse uh, what they already knew from their parents, but Moses is going to tell them all firsthand. Maybe God's speaking that to you tonight. You've been stuck in a spiritual rut, you know, only giving over so much of your life to God, and now you've only increased and grown in the Lord to a certain degree. And God may be saying to you tonight, you've dwelt long enough at this mountain. And in verse 7, turn and take your journey. Go to the mountains of the Amorites, to all the neighboring places in the plain, in the mountains, in the lowlands, in the south, on the seacoast, to the land of the Canaanites, to Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river of Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Go in, possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to give to them their descendants after them. And I spoke to you at that time saying, I alone am not able to bear you. Now, this actually was a very serious mistake of Moses because he wasn't to be carrying any of the burden to begin with. God was to be carrying all the burden. But Moses wasn't casting all his cares upon the Lord, and he began to get burdened by this massive amount of people. Remember, there were 600,000 men 20 years and older, probably three, three and a half million people. And so the Lord your God has multiplied you, and here you are today as the stars of the heaven in multitude, which is the fulfillment of the promise of Genesis 15. May the Lord God your fathers make you a thousand times more numerous. Whoa, three million times a thousand. Uh, that's a lot of people, like 300 billion people, I think. And... Uh, then you are, and bless you as he has promised you. How can I alone bear your problems and your burdens and your complaints? Choose wise, understanding, and knowledgeable men from among your tribes, and I will make them heads over you. And you answered me and said, The thing which you have told us to do is good. So the people were saying, All right, we like this. This is a good law that we have 70 of our people with part of your power. Now, these 70 men, way on down the road, and during the time of Christ, were completely reinstituted into a group of leaders called the Sanhedrin, made up of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Pharisees weren't fair, you see. 
And the Sadducees were sad, you see. And they were. <laughs> they were really tweaked. They didn't have a sense of justice. And as you remember, they were the ones who had our Lord handed over to the Romans to be crucified. But boy, it seemed good to them. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and knowledgeable men, and made them heads over you, leaders of thousands, leaders of hundreds, leaders of fifties, leaders of tens, officers for your tribes. Then I commanded your judges at that time, saying, Hear the cases between your brethren, and judge righteously between a man and his brother, or the stranger who is with him. You shall not, number one, show partiality in judgment. Number two, you shall hear the small, and number three, as well as the great. You shall not be afraid of any man's presence, for the judgment is God's. The case that is too hard for you, bring it to me, and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all the things which you should do. So Moses was sort of the supreme court of the day. If you can't figure it out, bring it on up to me. But again, God's sense of justice does not look at the man, whether he is rich or poor, old or young. He does not look at the man whatsoever. He simply hears the case. And you can see our judicial system today. And uh, if you look, uh, you'll see it's a woman who's has a blindfold over her eyes and she's holding her ears and the whole concept is um, we will not have any partiality I'm not going to look at you and say oh you look like an honest person or look at you going wow you're a rich person I want you to win or to look at the poor person going hey this rich man should give some of his wealth to you because I don't like people being poor so I'm going to rule in the favor of the poor man so he can get some of the rich man's wealth no all of that is not justice. All of that is not true equity. The whole point of the matter is just listen to the case. And just as a little side note, I have been on a jury. And Jesus' words in Matthew were the best. Don't be taken to law. Um, I have seen the most crude sense of justice on juries. Uh, I was on one case and... Uh, it was a Chinese man against an Iranian man. And uh, as it turned out, they asked certain questions to get on the jury. And one of the questions was, do you like Chinese food? <laughs> because it was about a Chinese restaurant. And so, you know, if you don't like Chinese food, it's like, hey, I'd, I'd like to see them all go, you know. Um, but if you like it, it's like, hey, yeah, I like Chinese restaurants. I want, I want, I want them to win. You know, they didn't necessarily want either way. But the other was, have you ever worked for a Chinese person, or have you, have you ever had a bad experience working for an Iranian man? Either one. Well, it ends up in the midst of this jury. Interesting enough, there is one other guy in the jury who is a Christian, and we didn't discuss the case like you're not supposed to, but when it came time to go back into the room and convene over this civil matter, um, this one person jumped in and became the foreman, and everybody began to discuss it, and, and it was just weird. I mean, everything they were saying was exactly the opposite of what I was thinking. And I looked across at this guy, and he's looking at me like going, we, we could just read each other's mind. Is this a nightmare or what? And all of a sudden, they're ready to vote, and it was totally messed up. And I just simply said a couple things, and five minutes later, everybody's ready to vote in my favor. And I'm just like going, my 
goodness. TV has dumbed down America. They can't think. It's just, it was just amazing. And this guy, other guy jumped in and said, yeah, I agree with them. And a few minutes later, we voted opposite of what it started out with the jury. And I thought, Lord, help me never have to go to court. I mean, it all depends on, you know, who's the shepherd to lead the handful of sheep. And I, I'm telling you, I, I have seen it myself that, you know, it would be better just to flip a coin. Uh, your chances were about the same. And uh, so I, I'm sorry, I, I have a hard time with our judicial system. I think it's pretty well bankrupt. And I pray for judges, and I pray for lawyers, and I'm, well, not really, but I pray for judges. And uh, just ask God to help our judicial system. I, I don't want to discourage anybody, but boy, we need prayer. And that's one. Of course, today our executive branch needs as much prayer as anywhere, um, or judgment, either way. And uh, verse 19. Let's move on. So we departed from Horeb and went through all that great and terrible wilderness which you saw on the way to the mountains of the Hormites, Amorite, whoever, as the Lord our God, Amorites, there we go. I got Horeb in there and wanted some Horeites if there weren't any. Amorites, there we go. Saw on the way the mountains of the Amorites, as the Lord our God had commanded us, then we came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said to you, you have come to the mountains of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. Now, underline that. The Lord our God, he's giving us. Look, verse 21. The Lord your God has sent the land before, set the land before you. Go up and possess it, as the Lord God of your fathers has spoken to you. Do not fear. Or be discouraged. And every one of you came near to me and said, Let us send men before us and let them search out the land for us and bring back word to us on the way of, by which we should go up and of the cities in which we shall come. And the plan pleased me well. So I took twelve of your men, one man from each tribe. So God said, I'm giving the land to you. Go up. And the people said, Let's send in spies. Let's wait. Let's not go up immediately. Let's just sort of tiptoe in. God said, dive in. The people said, let's tiptoe in. God said, just go right in. Go possess the land. I'm giving it to you. Don't be discouraged. Don't be afraid. Just move forward. And the people are saying, not yet. Let's go check things out to see exactly how we ought to go about this. And Moses said, hey, sounds good to me. Let's get one guy from uh, every tribe. Be careful when the plan seems good to everybody. <laughs> Earlier it seemed good when he said, let's choose 70 elders, and all the men said, hey, that seems good to us. End up being a horrible mistake later on. And now the people are coming to him saying, we got a good idea. And Moses said, wow, that sounds good to me. The proverb says there's a way that seems right unto the, to a man, but the end of that way is destruction. You know, I have had different ideas in my head that I thought, boy, this just seems like the right idea. But then later on to discover it was the exact opposite of what I should have thought or done. And so again, we need to back up and take a step backwards and say, what is God saying? Let's not lean on our understanding. Let's just acknowledge him and just let him direct our paths. 
Let's wait upon the Lord. But when God says to move, go forward. And of course, you remember what happened. And in verse 24, they departed and went up to the mountains and came to the valley of Ishkol and spied it out. They also took some of the fruit of the land in their hands and brought it down to us. And they brought back word to us saying, it is a good land which the Lord our God is giving us. Nevertheless, you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hates us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Sometimes ignorance is bliss. <laughs> Don't really know what you're getting into. Um, I remember, oh, 12 years ago, um, I was flying back on an airplane. The Lord spoke to me to start a church, to come down here. And I had no idea what I was doing. The Lord had also spoke a few months earlier for me and my wife to start uh, a family. And so she was working at a Christian school. And um, I, at the time, was on the staff at Horizon. And... Um, and the Lord spoke to us to start a family and to start a church all at the same time. Seemed fine to me at the time. And uh, so I came down to South Bay. I had no idea if anybody was going to come. The first Sunday, uh, we had passed out a lot of flyers in the neighborhood. A number of people came out. And there's about 30, 40 people that first Sunday. But um, as it turned out, I, I look back on it now my daughter Renee, our firstborn, was born nine months to the day after the church started. And I look back now and it's just like, that was crazy. <laughs> if I had realized what I was doing, I, I would have said, this is nuts. I shouldn't be doing this. And, uh, but I think I was just young and ignorant and it was actually to my advantage. And uh, I, I look, <laughs> if I were God, I never would have had me start a church, that's for sure. But um, here are the people, they went and spied out the land and they came back going, now we know exactly what we're getting ourselves into and we're scared to death. Had they just crossed on over and, and they were there and the people saw them and came out to battle, they're going, oh man, too late, we got to fight. You know, we're already in the midst of it. And then they would have won. Then they would have said, oh, well, man, had I just had time to think about this, I would have thought, these guys are giants and their cities are gigantic as well. And we can't do this, but we didn't have time to think about it. We just had to go forward. Sometimes that's the best way, you know, not to really contemplate on it, just to hear God and move. And uh, notice where they murmured in verse 27. They murmured in their tents. And that's where the murmuring should have stopped, in their tents. Be careful that you don't poison your own wells. I know often it's easy for us to murmur and complain, but you can destroy your kids' attitudes towards various things. You may go and complain about work, that stupid boss and that idiot job and man this and that. And now your kids grow up and it's time for them to go to work and what do they think? That idiot boss, that stupid job. That, Or you can do that towards your family. That idiot brother of mine, you know, that stupid mother-in-law, that... And, and we can actually give bad attitudes unto the kids. And it can happen as, at the church as well. 
coming home and griping or complaining about certain things, not being organized as, as they should be, or not being the quality that you would like to see them. And then you're raising your kids up to learn also to be critical and to complain. They murmured in the tents, and then when they came together, they said, no way. This is all a plot from God to kill us. He's just brought us out here to be mincemeat for the Amorites. That's the only thing God wanted. He just wanted to see us devoured by the Amorites. That's how, why he brought us out of Egypt and brought us down to this point. Of course, that was absolutely foolish. But in verse 28, Where can we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying, The people are greater and taller than who? We. The cities are great and fortified up to the heavens. Uh, I don't think they were quite that high. Uh, moreover, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. We saw these giant basketball players. And then I said to you, do not be terrified or afraid of them. Now, this is the major problem they had. They were measuring the people to themselves rather than to God. They weren't bigger than God. You know, when we were little kids, we used to look at our dad's shoe going, whoa. Look at the size of this shoe, you know. We used to stand and look up at Dad, you know, and we'd reach up and grab a hold of his belt buckle, you know, and going, whoa, man, you're gigantic, Dad, you know. And, of course, Dad was only 5'6". <laughs> but then you get to be a teenager, you know, and you sort of come over and lean your elbow on dad's shoulder going, how you doing, shrimp, you know? It's all from the perspective. And you see, God was with them. And God didn't say, go and win the battle. God said, go up. I will give them unto you. Go up. I will fight for you. We see in the Bible people having such attitudes. Remember Jonathan. He woke up early in the morning when they were fighting against the Philistines, and he just said, hey, God can win with one person. He could win with a whole army. It, it doesn't really matter. God's the one fighting. And he has this crazy idea, and he hits his armor bearer, and he says, what do you think? And he goes, hey, I'm with you. And he goes, I, I don't know. It's pretty crazy. Let's go over and let's sort of put a fleece out. If we say to the Philistine, Hey, here we are. And he says, hey, come up here and I'll show you a thing or two. We'll go up. We know God is going to do this. But if he says, wait there and I'll come down and show you a thing or two, we'll get on back to camp. And they got over the Philistines and there he was. He said, hey, come on up here and I'll show you a thing or two. And man, they just got on their hands and knees and just started, you know, doing the Spider-Man thing, climbing up then. And uh, they got to the top and pulled out their swords. And within a half an acre, 21 men lay dead and they won the victory that day. We also see with King Asa when the Ethiopians came up against them. And I love Asa's prayer in 2 Chronicles 14, 11. And Asa cried out to the Lord his God and said, Lord, it is nothing for you to help, whether with many or with those who have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on you. And in your name we go against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. I love that. You are our God. Don't let man prevail against you. And 
Second Chronicles 14.11. So it's such a powerful concept that God is for us. And so it doesn't really matter, you know. It's like the, the little kid, you know. There's a big kid saying, oh, you know, I'm going to beat you up. And the little kid's standing there going, come on over. And, and the big guy just gets these giant eyes and just takes off running down the street, you know. And the little kid's going, all right, scared him away. And he turns around, and there's his big brother behind him, you know. That's us. We don't have to be big. God is right behind us. We don't have to cast a big shadow. God will do it. But they didn't have faith in God. It's such an important concept. Don't leave God out of the equation of your life. Whatever the situation is, it doesn't matter what, about your strength or your ability. But if you don't trust in God, fear will grip your hearts. And then we're prone to say, oh, it can't be done. But when God enters the equation, the word impossible has to be thrown out. There's nothing impossible for God. All things are possible with the Lord. And so he said to them, don't be afraid. Don't be terrified of them. Now in verse 30, the Lord your God who goes before you, he will fight for you according to all he did to you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you. I love this. As a man carries his son in all the way that you went until you came to this place. So in reality, God had blessed them so much, rained manna out of heaven, the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. God had carried them as a man carries his son. In their, their minds, he's going, God hates us. It's all a plot to destroy us. Over in Deuteronomy 4, he says that God loves them, and that's why he's done these great works. And we'll see that in just a minute. God loves them, and he's carried them as a, Father carries his son. And we should never, as it says in Job chapter 1, verse 22, then all of Job's calamities, it says he never charged God wrong or he never charged God foolishly. He never said, oh man, if God really loved me, I wouldn't have these boils all over my body. If God really loved me, he wouldn't allow those people to steal everything I have. He never did that. He just worshiped God. He said, naked I came in this world, naked I go out. Praise be the name of the Lord. He never did that. And these people here, they just had that heart for God. They'd say, hey, let's go up. It doesn't matter. If we die, we get to go to heaven. If we live, we get the promised land. Either way, man, we're entering into a new dimension today. It doesn't really matter. But they didn't have that kind of faith. They didn't know of God's love, although his love was all around them. They never had faith to believe in his love for them. And in verse 32, yet for all of that, you did not believe the Lord your God who went in the way before you. I love this. In verse 33, to search out a place for you to pitch your tents, to show you the way you should go in the fire by night and the cloud by day. So God would go before them and so the, the cloud would be leading them, but God would go up in front of them and clear out a spot for them. And sure enough, the cloud would stop, and then they would look around going, whoa, look at this, everything's all cleared out. Here's a perfect spot for my tent, and here's a great place for my tent, and everything was smoothed out and prepared by God to give them a place to put their tent. Isn't that radical? God is such a practical God. 
how we need to realize he knows every hair on our head. He knows every sparrow that falls from the ground. God knows you. God knows where you're going to be living a year from now. God knows you're the very last second of your life. God knows, and he's already preparing a place for you. We can easily get distracted, can't we, when we start getting humanistic. Oh no, you know, I'm single and I'm 20 years old. Am I ever going to get married, you know? That's never going to happen, you know? Oh no, I'm, I'm 30 years old. I'll never own a house. Man, I'm 40 years old. I'm still stuck at this job. Man, God knows. And we don't have to freak out. We don't have to try to say, what am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? Oh, no. We don't have to, to freak out. God is so in charge of your life. Whatever difficulties have come, it's God humbling your heart that you'll be rich in him. I think if we would all say logically, if I need to be poor to be rich spiritually, I want to be poor. Every one of us here, if we would just sit and think about it, would say, if causing me to be lonely and to feel lonely feelings by not being married would give me a more intimate relationship with God, then I choose to be lonely on this earth, to have a closer relationship with Him. I think if we would have to say, for me to have my heart in heaven on the things above where Christ is seated, and not to own a house here, that's fine. I don't need to own a house here since I already have a dwelling place in heaven. And so we can sometimes get distracted by saying, oh no, you know, and, and freak out. God's, God's not have all control. But here we see he's, he's doing something as, as insignificant as going and sp- smoothing out a spot for them to put their tent. Who, who is it, Terry? We need a mom? Go ahead, Bob. Somebody's kid's screaming over there. I guess they unlocked the closet and he ran out, huh? Tell him, don't unlock the closet until right before the end of the service. And in verse 34, And the Lord heard the sound of your words and was angry and took an oath, saying, Surely not one of these men of this evil generation shall see that good land of which I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, He shall see it, and to him, his children, I am giving the land on which he walked. Because, I love this, he wholly followed the Lord. Now, if you look back in Numbers chapter 14, 8, Caleb said, hey guys, let's go up because God is giving us this land. Everybody else said, let's stone him. (laughs) Jesus constantly said all the way through the New Testament, Be it unto you according to your faith. Caleb, Joshua said, Hey, there are bread, man. There are butter. Let's just go up and take out those giants, man. Bigger they are, the harder they fall. Let's go. They had the faith. And you know what? God said, Be it unto you according to your faith. Caleb, you said, I was going to give you the land. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do exactly what you said. I'm going to give you the land. Remember the woman who had the hemorrhage? She said, all I have to do is touch the fringe of his garment and I will be made whole. And when Jesus sensed that the power went out from him, he stopped, he said, who touched me? And it was evident that this woman had touched him, although the whole multitude was mauling him 
Yet one woman had faith in her heart, saying, if I touch just the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. And she had had that issue of blood for over 12 years. She spent all the money that she had upon doctors, and she had no relief whatsoever. But at that moment, she was healed. And we see that with Caleb, this radical man of God. He wholly followed the Lord. Man, do or die. I'm going for it, man, with Christ all the way. And the Lord was also angry with me for your sake, saying, Even you shall not go in there. The Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall go in there. Encourage him. Boy, there's a whole sermon that could be preached on that two words right there. Encourage him. Four, he shall cause Israel to inherit it. The Bible says to encourage one another while it's still called day. You know, we need to be encouraged daily. Ask God to give you that gift of encouragement. Remember Barnabas? His real name was Judas. But right early in the church, in the book of Acts, they changed his name to Barnabas. That means son of encouragement. Because everything he did and everything he said was such an encouragement to the people. Right at the very beginning of the church, all of these women, these widow women, who were taken care of by the Jewish system who would work in the temple area, thousands of them saw the miracles, heard the words of Jesus, and that day of Pentecost they were saved. But immediately the church had all of these thousands of women to take care of. And Barnabas, who was a very wealthy businessman, went and sold everything he had. Not one penny did remained in his pocket. And he gave everything he had to take care of those widows uh, for a time. He was just this man who was just an incredible encourager. Nobody would even talk to Apostle Paul. But he went and got Paul uh, out of um, Antioch or brought him, got him out of Tarsus and brought him down to Antioch to help teach the church there. What an encourager he was. And he caused Israel, so encourage him to cause Israel to inherit the land. We need to encourage one another, why it's called day, to inherit all that God has for us. Moreover, your little ones and your children, whom you said were victims, who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in there to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and take your journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. Then you answered and said to me, We have sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight, just as the Lord our God commanded us. And when every one of you girded up your weapons of war, you were ready to go up into the mountain. And the Lord said to me, Tell them, Do not go nor fight, for I am not among you, lest you be defeated before your enemies. So they had said, these giants, man, they'll whip us. And they were absolutely right. Interesting, isn't it? Caleb said, God's going to give us the land. He was right. The people said, but the giants can defeat us. They were right. <laughs> they were both right. It just really depended on the situation. Caleb was right because he was certain that God would go with them. The people were right because they weren't with God. And now they're going in their own strength. And what they said was absolutely accurate. They could not devour the enemies. And so I spoke to you, yet you would not listen. They wouldn't listen to go in the land, and then they wouldn't listen not to go in the land. But they rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the mountain. 
And the Amorites who dwelt in that mountain came out against you and chased you as bees do and drove you back from Seir to Hormah. Then you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord would not listen to your voice nor give ear to you. So you remained in Kadesh many days according to the days that you spent there. We've got to be careful of this presumptuous attitude towards God. You hear people sometimes just say, well, just step out in faith, man. Or you hear them saying, well, it's easier to move a boat that's moving than one that's sitting still. And what are they saying? They're saying, I can just do what seems right to me and God will bless it. And folks, that is just completely untrue. Well, Abraham, he just went out to a land he did not know of. Yeah, read the verses before. God spoke to Abraham <laughs> to go out to a land he knew not of. Abraham didn't wake up one morning going, huh, I think I'll just go to somewhere I've never seen before and watch God bless me. That's not the way it was. Now, if God says to go, go. But I've seen people who... Oh, we get them pretty regularly here in San Diego. Usually, when they're sick of the snow in the middle of winter, we'll get some guy showing up in a car, sometimes with his family in a car, saying, here we are, you know, you're the church, take care of us. We're Christians too, from Oregon or Washington or wherever, you know. They used to live in California, but they thought, man, I want to own an acre, wouldn't have my own cow, and then they realized owning an acre was a lot of work and the cow smelled, and now they're wanting to come back to San Diego and surf, you know. Well, you know, we're just walking by faith. You're walking presumptuously. Your flesh took you to Oregon. You weren't blessed there. And now your flesh has brought you back to San Diego and you're not blessed here. Whew. I hate getting ahead of God. I hate saying, okay, God, you know, I've opened my cell, blow wind in it. No, that's not the way God works. We need to wait upon the Lord. We need to know his heart, know his mind, know the word. And when we hear him speak, we'll know it. And then, no matter what the circumstances are, walk forward. But don't walk forward until God has said go. Wait on the Lord. I say, wait. Be of good courage and wait on the Lord. And so here they were presumptuously going, okay, God, we're, bless us now. And God says, no. And when they cried, he didn't listen to their voice. Why? Because they weren't sorry for their sin. They were sorry that they got defeated. You can go out to the prison here and you'll find everybody sorry. But few people are sorry for what they did wrong. They're just sorry they're in prison. There's a difference, you see. The Bible says that we need to be led to a godly sorrow. A godly sorrow says, I don't care about the consequences. That's not what I'm sorry over right now. I'm sorry that I sinned against God. I'm sorry that I messed up the plan that he had. I'm sorry that I didn't trust in him and believe in him and wait upon him. I am sorry that I have thwarted what God desired to do through my foolishness and my wrong choices and my wrong attitudes have hindered the hand of God. I'm sorry. Now, you're not sorry just because things are going bad, but you're sorry because you've sinned against God. Well, in chapter 2, then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness of the way of the Red Sea, going back to where they started, as the Lord spoke to me, and we skirted Mount Seir for many days. And the Lord spoke to me, saying, You skirted this mountain long enough. Turn northward. Is God funny or what? 
I mean, they're just following the cloud. And here they are walking around in a circle around this mountain, and God says, hey, aren't you guys tired of walking around in that circle? Why don't you stop? <laughs> what do you mean stop? You know, we're just following the cloud. You're the ones who put it around in a circle. God says, hey, go ahead and go northward now. And so they commanded the people, saying, you are about to pass through the territory of your brethren, the descendants of Esau, who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. Remember, God had put the dread and the fear of Israel upon all the people. That was part of God's work of the Holy Spirit so that enemy would be defeated before them. And so they're going to be afraid of you, but therefore watch yourself carefully. So don't take an advantage of the situation. They're going to be afraid of you, and they're going to want to fight with you, or they're going to be cautious about you. And don't you be a big bully saying, oh, right, man, we can tell they're afraid of us because they know God's with us. No, do not meddle with them, for I will not give you any of their land, no, not so much as one footstep, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. Now, in these next few verses, this is sort of an interesting concept of God. He's actually going to cause Israel to become jealous by what he has done for a lesser people. Now you remember Esau, that rebellious, self-willed individual, that one that God cut off and chose his younger brother Jacob over him. Well, God says, I've given them their land to possess it. What's he doing? He's trying to provoke Israel by means of comparison to jealousy, to say, just like I wanted to do for you and didn't, couldn't. I already did it for them. They're in their land of promise and they're experiencing the blessedness of it and I'm protecting them in the land of promise that nobody can win over them. No, not even you. So you shall buy food from them with money that you may eat and you shall also buy water from them with money that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hand. He knows you're drudging through the great wilderness these 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. And when we pass beyond our brethren, the descendants of Esau, who dwell in Seir, away from the road of the plain, away from Eleth and Azon and Gibber, we turned and passed by the way of the wilderness of Moab. Then the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab, nor contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land as a possession, because I have given our to the descendants of Lot as a possession. And now watch God rub their nose in it. In verse 10, the Emim had dwelt there in times past, a people as great and numerous, as tall as the Anakim, that you guys were afraid of, by the way. They were also regarded as giants like the Anakim, <laughs> but the Moabites called them Emim. The Horites formerly dwelt in Seir, but the descendants of Esau did dispossess them and destroyed them. For before them and dwelt in their place, just as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave them. So God started rubbing their nose in it, going, hey, what about Lot? Remember Lot, that perverse guy whose wife was turned to salt because her longing was for that wicked Sodom and Gomorrah, and then his two daughters got him drunk and had kids from an incestuous relationship with her own dad? That guy, I blessed him, and he got his land. And by the way, both of them had to fight against giants as big as your Anakim, and they weren't afraid. They didn't turn back. They went in and they beat the giants, unlike you guys. Now rise and cross over the valley of Zered, in verse 13. So we crossed over the valley of Zered. 
And the time we took to come from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed over the valley of Zered was 38 years until all the generations of the men of war was consumed from the midst of the camp, just as the Lord had sworn to them. For indeed, the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the midst of the camp until they were consumed. So it was when all the men of war had finally perished from among the people that the Lord spoke to me, saying, This day you are to cross over at Ar, the boundary of Moab, and when you come near to the people of Ammon, do not harass them or meddle with them, for I will give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as the possession, because I have given it to the descendants of Lot as a possession. By the way, that was also regarded as the land of the giants, <laughs> and the giants formerly dwelt there too. But the Amorites called them Zanzuman, a people a great and numerous and tall as the Anakim, that you were afraid of, by the way. But the Lord destroyed them before them, and they dispossessed them and dwelt in their place, just as he had done for the descendants of Esau, who dwelt in Seir, when he destroyed the Hornites from before them. They dispossessed them and dwelt in th their place even to this day. Pretty interesting, isn't it? God comes back and he says, you know what? Esau and his people had the same exact trial. And these people, I gave the land unto them. I gave the giants over to Esau and his descendants. I gave the land over to Moab and his descendants of, of Lot. They trusted in me more than you trusted in me. Now it's interesting if you go over to the New Testament, Paul sees that the Gentile believers God was using to bring jealousy to the Jews. And by jealousy, provoked many of them to believe in Jesus the Messiah. God's an interesting God, isn't he? He's unique in his ways. And so here God is stirring them up, letting them know, hey, it's been done before by a lesser people than you. People that were not called by my name. People that I cut off and cast out, but yet I continue to have a covenant of promise with them, and I bless them, and they did what you were supposed to do, and they had a far lesser relationship. And so now he tells them in verse 24, Rise, take your journey, cross over the river Arnon. Look, I have given into your hand Sion, the Amorite, king of the Heshbon, and his land. Begin to possess it and engage him in battle. You're not going to have a victory without a battle. You can't have, you have to fight in order to have a victory. And so here he says, you've got to go to battle. And so he's stirring them up, telling them about Esau and, and him defeating the, the giants, stirring them up by the way of Lot's descendants and how they defeated the giants. And now he says, okay, let's go, guys. Let's cross over and let's have our victory. But you can't have the victory if you're not willing to fight. This day I will begin to put the dread and the fear of you upon the nations. God does his own advertising and marketing, doesn't he? He spread the news without one flyer. Under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish before you. And I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedmoth to Sion, king of Heshbon, with the words of peace, saying, Let me pass through your land. I will keep strictly to the road, and I will turn neither to the right nor the left. But you shall sell me food for money that I may eat, and give me water for money that I may drink. Only 
let me pass through on foot. And just as the descendants of Esau who dwelt in Seir and the Moabites who dwelt in Ar did for me until I cross the Jordan to the land which the Lord our God has given us. But Sion, king of Heshbon, would not let us pass through for the Lord your God hardened or made firm his decision in his spirit and he made his heart obstinate and he might deliver him into your hand as it is this day. So Sion, again, was one of these kings that God had given 400 years, one of these kingdoms, 400 years to repent. And so when they came and said, hey, you know, this isn't our promised land. We're not necessarily going to try to overtake your land. And uh, he said, so let me go through. But yet his heart was already hard towards God. So God confirmed that man's direction by going ahead and hardening his heart even further, that he might have a battle with him. And the Lord said to me, See, I have begun to give Sion and his land over to you. Begin to possess it, that you may inherit his land. God is the one who sets the boundaries of the world. Paul, in one of his sermons, in chapter 17, verse 26 of Acts, said, And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and their boundaries of their habitations. So God has preordained their times and their boundaries, and Sion's time was history, and his boundaries were now Israel's. And then in verse 32, Then Sion and all the people came out against us to fight at Jahaz, and the Lord our God delivered him over to us. So we defeated him, his sons, and all his people. We took all his cities at that time, and we utterly destroyed the men and women and the little ones of every city. We left none remaining. Now, some people have a hard time with this. They say, hold it, how could God destroy women and children? Well, you, you have to remember that the pagan practices were just gross. We see today with just one immoral act, we see AIDS. You know what? Bestiality, folks, is on its way. And... Just as ridiculous as it is today to say, here's two men, they want to adopt a child, and the world's going, sounds fine to me, you know, there used to be a fun show on my two dads, ha 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 ha, you know. Yeah, believe me, folks, all those sitcoms are a setup. They're all a setup. Where two dads are raising a, a child, or two women are raising a child because you know, the two husbands left or the two husbands died and then there's two women raising a child and, or uh, even innocent shows, you know, uh, like Full House where you have a group of men raising kids in San Francisco. Huh. I wonder if there's any uh, other motive behind that. Of course there is. It's a setup trying to get you desensitized by a situation going, well, you know, if it worked for them, maybe it'll work, you know, if it worked for Brady Bunch type attitude, you know, it'll work for... No, it's a setup. But it's going to come right around the corner to say, hey, whatever I do with my dog in my house is my business. And let me tell you, if you think AIDS is destructive, wait till you see the diseases that are going to come from bestiality. And so just like today, if a woman has AIDS, she gives birth to a child, that child is going to have AIDS. And so these children and these women and a lot of their animals in certain 
of the countries, God even had their animals destroyed. Every animal, not one animal could come back. Why? Because of the sick sins and the diseases that were upon even the animals. And God wanted them destroyed. Why? To protect their kids. If you're out in your front yard and you see this cute little puppy dog walking up, and then all of a sudden it stops and it begins to growl and foams begins to come out of its mouth, and you get your gun and you shoot it, people at first reaction might say, oh, how horrible, you know, shooting a poor little dog like that. But then when you look over and you decide, you, you, you see that the thing has rabies and it was getting ready to jump at your child playing in the front yard, all of a sudden now you're a hero. So again, God is not trying to be evil or cruel by destroying these people. God is trying to protect his own kids. And if it has to destroy a nation in order to do that, God will do that. And that does not make God evil. Everything God does is from the heart of love. And so it was a loving act to have these people destroyed to protect his own children. And in verse 35, we took only the livestock as plunder for ourselves with the spoil of the cities which we took from Ahor, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, and from the city that is in Ravine, as far as Gilead. There was not one city too strong for us. The Lord our God delivered all to us. You might underline that. The Lord our God delivered all to us. Whatever your cities are that you have to conquer the Lord your God will be the one to deliver it over to you the Bible says the servant of the Lord must not strive we don't have to strive we don't have to push and shove and try to get ahead like the world you can be at peace if God wants you to have that promotion there's nothing that'll keep you from having that promotion just work is unto the Lord, and whatever comes your way, comes your way. And if some guy lies about you and stabs you in the back and you don't get the promotion, you don't have to get in there and defend yourself. You don't have to start pushing and shoved to say, hey, that guy's a jerk, and he, you know. Just lay low. God knows your finances. God knows your desires. God has it all in control. You don't have to push. You don't have to shove. You don't have to try to force your way to get ahead. God has all in control and you'll be in his perfect timing as you just look to him and trust in him just really strive to be in prayer strive to be in the word that is what we need to take seriously don't take anything else seriously just take your relationship with God very serious and everything else don't take serious if you'll center your mind upon God his word prayer, fellowship with Christians, hearing the word of God preached, desiring to be a light and, and a salt into this earth. You know what? The Bible says as you seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, all these things will be added unto you. All the things of the earth will be added unto you. Houses and lands and families and cars and health and vacations, all of these things will be added unto you. God will give you the desires of your heart as you trust in him. Wait patiently for him. Commit your whole unto him. Commit it all to him. He will give you the de even the desires of your heart. And so, again here, God delivered all. 
Only you did not go near the land of the people of Ammon or anywhere along the river Jabbok or the cities of the mountains or wherever the Lord our God had forbidden us. And in chapter 3, Then we turned and went up to the road of Bashan and Og, Og means giant, the giant king of Bashan came out against us and he and all his people to battle at Edri. Now this guy was known as a great warrior. Uh, we're going to see over in verse 4, he had 60 cities. Down in verse 11, we see that Og had a bed that was nine cubits in length and four cubits in width. To give you an idea, four cubits wide, Goliath was six cubits tall. <laughs> this guy was almost as wide as Goliath was tall. He was a giant guy. There's usually around 18 inches to a cubit. And so if you figure that up, it's around 13.5 feet tall and 6 feet wide. And so um, uh, this guy was probably 12, 13 feet tall. Uh, the basketball hoop is 10 feet high. So he would have been probably a head taller than the basketball. He could have dunked his own head. <laughs> and the Lord said to me, do not fear him. <laughs> Boy, I'm sure they were afraid. Uh, probably had the biggest old horse and it looked like a little Shetland pony under that guy. And for I have delivered him and all his people and his land into your hand. You shall do to him as you did to Sion, king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon. So the Lord our God also delivered into our hands Og, king of Bashan, with all his people. <laughs> and we attacked him until he had no survivors remaining. And we took all his cities at that time. There was not a city which did not take from them 60 cities, all the region of Argob, the kingdom of Og and Bashan. All these cities were fortified with high walls, gates, bars, besides a great many rural towns, and we utterly destroyed them as we did to Sion, king of Heshbon, utterly destroying the men, women, children of every city and all the livestock and the spoil of the cities. We took his booty for ourselves. And at that time, we took the land from the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were on this side of the Jordan from the river Arnon in Mount Hebron. And he goes on in verse 12. And this land which we possessed at this time from Ar, which is by the river Aron, uh, the half the mountains of Gilead, its cities, I gave to the Reubenites and Gadites. And we covered that just a week ago. Um, remember, they wanted to stay on the east side of Jordan rather than going on over and uh, entering into the promised land that God had given them as a possession. And so... Um, they were to go on over and they were to help win the kingdoms. And in verse 22, you must not fear them for the Lord your God himself fights for you. And oh, how we need to remember that. And in verse 23, then I pleaded with the Lord at that time saying, O Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatest and your mightiest hand. And oh, for what God is there in heaven on earth who can do anything like your works and your mighty deeds. I pray, let me cross over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, those pleasant mountains and of Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me on your account and would not listen to me. So the Lord said to me, enough of that. Speak no more of me. Speak no more to me of this matter. 
So, boy, think about this for a minute. Moses has been with God now 120 years old. For 80 years, he's seen the mighty hand of God. For 40 years with the children of Israel. But now, as they're for sure getting ready to go into the promised land, he's seen God work like he's never seen God work in all his 120 years. He's never seen God work like this. But, consequences. He's missing out. And he comes back and he says, God, lighten the load. Take some of the consequences away for my blunder, for my sin. And God said, no. The consequences stay. Oh, Christians, that we had wise up today to desire to live the holiest, purest, most innocent life before God, that we don't miss out on the greatest and the mighty things that he wants to do. Now, Moses had at this time two options as he saw it. One was to stay on earth to see God working on earth in power to take the promised land. The other was to go to heaven to be with the Lord face to face. (laughs) Gee, neither option seems to be that bad. They're great. Both options are awesome. But Moses would rather remain upon earth and see the mighty power of God while he's still in human flesh. Let that be a note to every single one of you. As wonderful as heaven is going to be, it's not going to be as wonderful if you haven't experienced the mighty hand of God while on this earth. Oh, that every one of us would listen to the command of Christ and store up so many riches in heaven to give our life to the Lord. Paul had this same dilemma in Philippians chapter 1, there in verse 19. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 19, he says, For I know that this will turn out for my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. For if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor, yet what I shall choose I cannot tell in verse 23 for I am hard pressed to be between the two having a desire to depart and to be with Christ which is far better nevertheless to remain in the flesh is more needful for you and being confident of this I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again If I had a choice right now and seeing God beginning to work such a great work in our church and hearing the revival that's coming, I'm so certain that God's going to do still far more than we've even experienced in these last couple of years. I want to stay (laughs) a little bit longer to see a little more of the radical move that God is doing. It's so exciting to be a part of God's powerful hand to see him speaking to us during the word and doing so many great and awesome things for us. But the Lord was angry and said, Speak no more on this matter. In verse 27, So go up to the top of Pishkah and lift your eyes towards the west, the north, the south, and the east. Behold it with your eyes, for you shall not cross over this Jordan. 
Um, actually, it's in the land of Jordan today. It's just right over on the east side of the Dead Sea. And uh, you'll see some mountains up there. And so Moses would have looked down upon the Dead Sea that wasn't dead at that time. It was still alive. And uh, I confess, I shot it with a shotgun. Um, I killed it. I shouldn't have, but... Anyway, it's a joke over in Israel. You know, how long has the seed been dead? Well, ever since I shot it. You know, it's one of those jokes. Anyway, um, <laughs> you ask the tour guide, they always like to tell you that joke. And I didn't laugh either. But anyway, <laughs> he was there at Pishgah and he was able to look over the promised land. But he commanded Joshua and encouraged him and strengthened him. I wonder what Moses said. He's like going, oh, Joshua, you lucky dog. Man. I, I wish I could so much could be able to do what you're going to do, leading these people into the promised land. Joshua, man, you're, you're, this is an awesome opportunity. And so he encouraged him and strengthened him, for he shall go over before this people, and he shall cause them to inherit the land which you will see. So he stayed in the valley opposite Beth Peor. Well, I hope to finish chapter 4 tonight, but we won't. We'll hang on to that and delve into it next week and uh, looking for the Lord just to really speak to us greatly. Lord, we thank you for this time tonight in your word and we thank you for your great and awesome works that you have done. And Lord, we thank you that we know that you are our God and that you love us that you've saved us because you have a promised land for each and every one of us. And even now, you're constantly going before us, making a place for us to put our tents, constantly fighting for us, constantly being our strength and our victory. Lord, give us the boldness and the courage this week to go out and to fight that we might have a victory. Lord, make us a witness. Make us a blessing. Lord, stir our hearts so greatly, Lord to desire more and more and more of the things of you. And I pray that none of us would turn to the right or to the left, that none of us would sin in such a way that would cause us to limit what it is you want to do, that we would never hear like Moses saying, don't talk to me of any more of this matter. You're not going to be able to go in and possess it. God, help us now, whether we're young or whether we're old, to have wisdom about us, knowledge and understanding to keep our way straight to you, to fear you, to love you, to serve you, to do your will and only your will. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. To be living under at that time. And this morning we talked about in detail how important it is that we don't sin, that sin of omission, that sin of not doing your part, not doing your share. The willingness to be able to sit when you're supposed to be going forward in battle. That sin of not participating when you're supposed to participate. The bottom line is, is we can't do it without every part. It says in Ephesians 4.16 that every part does its share. The whole body coming together, every joint, every ligament working together causes the growth. That everybody's prayer is needful. Everybody's time, everybody's giving, everybody's serving, everybody's witnessing, everybody's loving, everybody to be a part of the things that God has commanded us and instructed us in the word. And how we need to encourage one another, why it's called day, to not be the Gadites 
or the Reubenites, but to raise up and to press a hold, press ahead, to grab a hold of what God has grabbed a hold of us for. Now, chapter 33 is actually Moses' own personal diary or journal. He's making his little notes the day they left Egypt. Interesting, he makes a note there in verse 3 and 4 that when they were leaving Egypt, they were leaving Ramses there, that the Egyptians, in verse 4, were quite preoccupied with burying their firstborn. Wow, I never thought about that. Here are all the children of Israel, three, three and a half million of them leaving the promised land. What were the Egyptians were doing? They were all at a funeral service that day. They were all busy mummifying their firstborns. They were all busy getting their dead prepared for uh, the pyramids. Pretty radical when you think about it. And so, no doubt, they weren't even thinking about the Israelites, but after they left, then it makes sense why um, the Pharaoh said, let's now go get them, you know, the funeral's over, let's get out of here and go get them. Well, in verse 48, the you can read through all the different stops they made if you want. Um, I'm sure as an archaeologist, it would be very interesting to be able to retrace the steps of the children of Israel point by point. Again, we have a historical Bible, which is very good. But they come back to the same spot they were 40 years earlier in verse 48. And then in verse 50, the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, saying... Speak to the children of Israel and say, When you have crossed the Jordan, not if you cross the Jordan, but when you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, destroy all the engraved stones, destroy all their molded images, demolish all their high places. You shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell in it, for I have given you the land to possess. And you shall divide the land by lot as inheritance among the families to the larger. You shall give a larger inheritance to the smaller. You shall give a smaller inheritance. There everyone's inheritance shall be whatever falls to him by lot. You shall inherit according to the tribes of your fathers. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land and from before you, then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your sides and they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. That sort of gives us a little insight where Paul says, there's a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan. And I cried out to God. Maybe it wasn't a physical infirmity that he had. Maybe it was persecution. He mentions one Smithite in particular, a silversmith, who remember in chapter 16 of Acts, the gal who followed after Paul and Barnabas saying, listen to these guys, they're great men of God, listen to them. And on the third day, they discerned this woman was demon-possessed because she was so obnoxious. 